Hey, how we doing? Grab your Bibles and turn to Genesis, the 13th chapter. Genesis, the 13th chapter. Um, if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. There's ushers coming up and down the rows. Just raise your hand. They'll get a the Bible in your hands. If you don't have a Bible of your own, just keep this as a gift from us. As I was listening to the um, start of the service, um, I was reminded of this incredible blessing that I have to work with a group of very, very young and very, very talented individuals at this church. Did you guys enjoy that offertory special? Um, that was produced a couple weeks ago. That's our youth room at the Grand Haven campus in a smoke machine. And it's produced by Lucas and Emo. And I've been excited for you guys to see that. Um, during announcements, you guys saw Dylan came up and made announcements. I made fun of him at the nine o'clock service for the sweater that he was wearing. I don't think I want to repeat that. I don't think it's worth the effort. He is so fashionably challenged on a regular basis that um, I just know he's stubbornly committed to a lack of fashion. He wears LeBron James jerseys to work most days of the week. Pray for him. And um, how many of you were here last week when um, Alec Bright preached? That was the first time. That was the first time he's preached. And uh, as I was listening to it, I was out of town. I was in Phoenix, I'm just sitting there and going, man, if I could sing like that and preach like that at 24, I would be unbearable to live with. <laughs> that amount of talent in one kid. And um, he's 24 years old. That was the first time he's ever preached. He's, he's technically like he's a puppy. Like you guys understand that. It's puppy chow still, you know what I mean? And um, I look at the people and the young lives that have been entrusted to us as a church and I look forward to a day 10 years from now, 20 years from now, to see these guys still faithfully serving in what God has in store for them. And uh, just pray for us as we work with them and steward what God's entrusted to us, that we're faithful to those things. We are starting a new series um, for the next three weeks. It's called Generous King, Generous People. And uh, I'm going to be in Genesis 13 this morning. The big idea this morning is this. Let me get this in front of you right away. It's the idea that generosity is a family trait. Generosity is a family trait. My wife and I have, uh, have enjoyed the blessing of coming from families that were very generous. It's interesting, if I look down my wife's line, her grandfather was a businessman. He grew up in kind of the western suburbs of Chicago, but he was very, very involved and committed to his local church. And when Kristen's dad was in high school. Her grandfather found himself in a situation that they were looking for a pastor and they took a shot on a young man who just graduated from Wheaton College. They called him to the pastorate, but he didn't have any money. He didn't have any resources. He didn't have a place to stay. So in order for him to become the pastor of the church they were at, he had to live in their house for um, more than several months, I think somewhere between a year and two years. So they just opened up their house to this young pastor and treated him like part of the family. His name was Billy Graham. And uh, my father, or my wife's grandfather, would be a lifelong friend serving in his ministry until the day that he died. Um, Kristen's dad was a businessman in the Chicago suburbs. He was very, very blessed in business. By 1989, he had made Forbes magazine as one of the richest men in the country. And 10 years later, he would die at the age of 60. And at that time, we could look back at his achievements financially and we weren't surprised to learn that um, the amount of money that he had given away to charity exceeded the amount that was in his estate. 
So there's a legacy of generosity on my wife's side. The same is true actually on my side. Um, My parents were very middle class. I was the youngest of five kids. We were solidly middle class. My dad was never in Forbes magazine, I'm sure of that, and I'm pretty sure he never read Forbes magazine. (laughs) But the reality is, growing up, um, there was always a spare car on our driveway. Never a new car. Older cars that my dad would fix up, get running again, and then be able to give to people in the church or family members that were in need. There always seemed to be a spare room in our house, and there was always somebody who wasn't related to us or part of our immediate family that was staying in an extra room or maybe a trailer that we had. Just a legacy of generosity. When I was in high school, I was the youngest of five kids by five years, so all the other kids had moved on. I was left at home alone in my high school years with my parents, but to keep me from being alone, they brought my 93-year-old aunt from Florida to live with us, so we were kind of house buddies uh, during my high school years. We would have gotten along better if she had ever learned my name. I, I was I was the boy, um, never got the name part. And um, I went to her funeral when she died. She was 103. And as we were sitting out around just as a family reflecting, and we were commenting, it's like, man, it's good to have some good genetics in the family. My parents dropped on us that we weren't related. Um, She was just kind of a family friend. (laughs) So, So there was this spirit of generosity on both sides of our family that we're thankful for. And... um, What I would say is this, generosity is a family trait. We're going to see in Genesis 13, uh, two men, two families, they're going to come to a crossroads. They're going to be, they're they're going to make a choice. And in making the choice that we see in in Genesis 13, I don't know that the men at the time that they made the choice had an understanding of the profound impact the choices that they made would have not only on their lives, but the lives of their families and the generations that would follow. There's one choice, there's two paths. I'm actually going to jump back and pick it up at the start of chapter 12. I taught this passage during our Hebrews study just three or four weeks ago when we looked at the life of Abram, but let me just read the first couple verses of chapter 12 to you again. It says in verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So in teaching this a few weeks ago, I focused on four different aspects of what God has promised to Abram. He says, I'll give you a land. I'm going to make you a great nation. He says, I will bless you. And that's the best part of the whole thing. How many here are for God's blessing on your life? Like, like that's, that's what he gets promised. And then you get this messianic promise that because of you and your family, all the nations will be blessed. It's a promise that a future Messiah will come through the line of Abram. So he gets these four parts of this blessing. But when I taught on it four weeks ago, I didn't focus on a phrase that I want you to see now. Look at the end of verse two. He says, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So Abraham receives this blessing from God, but what he's told in in blessing you, there is an expectation that you also will be a blessing. He was blessed so that he could be a blessing. 
God calls Abram, blesses him, and the expectation is that in response to God's blessing, Abram will be a blessing to others. Now, I'm going to jump to chapter 13, the text that we're going to be looking at today, but in jumping there, we skip a story that I don't want to read through, but I'll just give you the highlights of, okay? There's a famine that hits the land where Abram and his wife Sarah are staying, and the famine forces them to go down to Egypt for survival. And on the way to Egypt, Abram gets nervous. He says, when we get to Egypt, my fear is that the men are going to see my wife, and because she's very beautiful, they're going to kill me to get her. So he devises, honestly, what is a pretty brilliant plan. He tells his wife, Sarah, when we get to Egypt, say that you're my sister, not my wife. And then rather than kill me, they'll be nice to me. Now, now women, brilliant plan or not? (laughs) Not so much from the woman's perspective, because what Abram's just done is to protect himself. He's put his wife in harm's way, right? So they get to Egypt, they get to the border, and she is noticed by the Egyptians. Actually, she becomes, it tells us, part of Pharaoh's household. And where Abram failed to protect his wife, God steps up big time. And the text says that he placed great plagues on the house of Pharaoh. Now, in the book of Exodus, we're going to read about 10 plagues. It doesn't call them great plagues in the book of Exodus, and it describes them in great detail. In Genesis, we don't get any detail. We're just told they're great plagues. I don't know what the difference is between a plague and a great plague. I'm just guessing it was pretty bad for Pharaoh and his household. Would you agree? So God protects Sarah, Abram's wife, when he wouldn't do it because of fear and lack of trust in the Lord. And amazingly, Abram leaves Egypt with way more wealth than he got there when he arrived. God blesses him in the spite of the fact of his lack of trust. And I tell you that story just for this reason. Somehow that makes me feel really good. Because Abram's not a superhero, He doesn't always just go from 12 and getting blessed and making good decisions. There's ups and downs in his walk with the Lord as well. But God's still always faithful to his promises. And somehow I find comfort in that. Chapter 13, verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him into the Negeb. And Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning. So he's back to the place where he started before he went down to Egypt because of the famine between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at first. See, that, that's a pattern in Abram's life. When God shows up and blesses him, there's always a response of worship. We'll see that he'll make another altar at the end of chapter 13. It says in verse 5, and Lot, that's Abram's nephew, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. Verse 6, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And at the time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So what we're reading about here is just kind of a real problem. Abraham's accumulated a lot of wealth. He's been blessed by God. Lot has accumulated a lot of wealth. He's been blessed by the fact that he stays in proximity to the man whom God blessed. And they get to the point where in living together, there's not enough room for all of their flocks and all of their possessions. And all of a sudden, the herdsmen are fighting over land and wells and all of those things. So this is a practical problem that they have to deal with. Look at what Abram does in verse 8. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we're kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? He says to Lot, he says, separate yourself from me. 
If you take the left hand, then I'll go to the right. And if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. It's an interesting moment. Actually, it's an act of incredible generosity on Abram's part. Abram's the one who received God's blessing. Abram is the older. He's the uncle. Lot is the nephew. He is the leader. Lot has always been presented as the follower, but has the choice of what land do you want. He says, Lot, you go right, I'll go left. You go left, I'll go right. It's your choice. That's a very generous thing that Abram does. And just to give you a little bit of perspective of how generous it was, can you put up the picture? Um, This is a kind of a picture of the Jordan Valley, a, a modern picture, but it gives you a little bit of perspective. Do you see what's behind the valley? That's Judea, okay? The valley has the Jordan River running through it. It is fertile. You can grow crops. You have water supply. The Judean hill country, like, man, you better dig a well or find a spring because life there is sucktastic (laughs) in comparison, Okay, this is a stark contrast when he says you can take the valley or you can take the hillside. Those weren't like equal choices. Abram wasn't saying it doesn't matter if you go right or left, they're both good. And yet he was generous. He gave his nephew the choice. It says in verse 10, and Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, the garden of Eden, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east and they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan and Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Okay, so one choice, two paths. Lot has made a choice. He is headed to the valley of the Jordan And I would just say it's symbolic. Lot chose the valley of self-interest. The text is clear. Lot made the selfish call. He looked at the lands. He decided which one was going to be more productive, which one would create more ease for him and his family, which one would lead to greater prosperity. And though he was the lesser, though Abram was the senior, Given the choice, self-interest drove his decision. I use the word self-interest. I had originally used selfish. Selfish would imply that it was all about him. I honestly don't think his choice was all about him. I think it was about him and his family and what would be better for the future generations as they separated. But the reality in making a choice of self-interest I don't believe that it was Lot's intent to put his family on the spiral that we're going to look at in a moment, but the reality is this choice of self-interest to go to the valley, to push his uncle up into the hillside, it's going to have devastating consequences for his family. Just look at the next verse, verse 13. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. I won't take the time to go through verse by verse and chapter by chapter what follows in the legacy of Lot's family from this choice that he made to inhabit the valley, but just let me give you the, well, the lowlights, okay? Chapter 19, verse 1, there's 
two angels that have been sent by God to Sodom and Gomorrah to see how wicked the cities actually are. And chapter 19, verse 1 says that when the angels approach the city of Sodom, they find Lot sitting at the gate of the city. Now, now that doesn't seem all that significant until you understand that the leadership of the city, the city council type of men, the important men of the city sat at the gates of the city and that's where they would hear disputes and make decisions on behalf of the city. So what's implied here is that Lot has not just moved in to a neighborhood where there were great sinners, he had become acclimated and comfortable dwelling alongside men who God describes his great sinners. He had acclimated himself. Just seven verses down in Genesis 19, we find that there's a riot that has broken out. The angels have arrived. They've gone to Lot's house, and the men of the city are demanding that Lot release the men or the angels to them. And the reality is, without getting too graphic, what Lot does is he says, don't touch these men. They're holy. Let me give you my daughter's. I'm just telling you, are you starting to sense there's a little bit of family dysfunction here? Like, like I don't think that that's going to be a decision that the daughters forget anytime soon. Would you agree? And then the Lord comes and he says to Lot, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. You need to flee. So Lot takes his family and all of his possessions and he flees from the cities. But as they're leaving the city, we're told in Genesis that Lot's wife has become conflicted. She's doing what the Lord has asked her to do, but the reality is leaving her possessions and her lifestyle and her friends and the life that she's become accustomed to back in Sodom has has, has divided her heart. She has divided affections, divided interests, and as she looks back at the destruction and God's judgment, well, if if you know the story, it didn't go great for her. Could we agree? The pillar of salt thing? So now Lot's family, less his wife, are now back up into the hill country, which he didn't choose to begin with, and he's fearful for his life because of what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. His daughters are like, everybody we were ever going to marry just got destroyed. There's no men for us. So they scheme and they come up with this plan and they get Lot drunk and picking up the story in Genesis 19, thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Now, if you know who the Moabites and the Ammonites are, as we get into Joshua, Judges, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, these names keep repeating themselves because they are Canaanite nations that, that are the arch enemies of God's people. If I were to give you a map, take a look at this map. This is modern day Israel. So Israel is here, but just to the east of the Jordan River, you've got the kingdom of Ammon, that's modern day Syria. You've got the kingdom of Moab, that's modern day Jordan. And to this day, Israel struggles to maintain peace with the people that occupy the eastern side 
of the Jordan River. Generation upon generation, thousands of years of strife created and the disintegration and destruction of Lot's family because he chose to reside in a valley of self-interest. Now, now I don't want you to think that I'm over being overdramatic or, or, or taking too much liberty with the text and what it's trying to teach us. So let me take you to some direct verses that will teach us the same thing. Proverbs eleven seven: When the wicked dies, his hope will perish and the expectation of wealth perishes too. I could spend an entire sermon on the three words, the expectations of wealth. We, we believe that wealth will satisfy, that wealth will give us security, that wealth will protect the following generations. Like we have a lot of expectations on wealth, but the reality that this verse stresses is when you die, your wealth does you no good. The, the U.S. dollar is an unaccepted currency in eternity. The expectations of wealth same chapter, Proverbs eleven twenty four. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give, and only suffers want. Okay. On the surface, that's a really illogical verse. You would think, just basic economics, that if I have a pile of stuff and I give some of it away. And the person next to me has the same pile and yet he hoards it and he keeps it for himself. At the end of the day, the person who hoards it that is stingy, that isn't generous, he's going to end up with more. That's basic economics. But what God is saying here is, I understand economics better than you do. I have the ability to redistribute wealth. And the way that it works in God's economy is the person who is generous will end up with more, as illogical as that seems to us. And the question becomes, do we believe that we're better at economics or whether God's better at economics? See, that's at the core of the debate. Who do we trust understands how all of this works Proverbs 28.8 says, whoever multiplies his wealth by interest and profit gathers it for him who is generous to the poor. <laughs> you want to spend all your life, how much can I make, how much can I make, how much can I charge, how much can I profit? What, what this verse is saying is, congratulations, whatever you accumulate in those pursuits, God will redistribute and give to the ones who is generous to the poor. And again, Proverbs 28, 22, a stingy man hastens after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. A stingy man hastens after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. Some of the most impoverished people I've ever met have plenty of money. The, the issue is what did they give up in the accumulation of that wealth? Has it cost them their integrity? Has it cost them their marriage? Has it cost them the respect of their children? See, see, sometimes you can have it all and have nothing. And Lot makes a choice of self-interest that puts him in a valley and leads to a legacy throughout his family that's really, really difficult. Let me, let me try to illustrate this. So um, we were down last week in Phoenix, Arizona, 
um, to get away for Thanksgiving. Kristen's mom was celebrating her 80th birthday, so the three daughters and all of their kids and all of the grandkids gathered down in Phoenix. It was wonderful. It was 56 and raining. We really enjoyed it. There's nothing better than 10 grandkids in hotel rooms when you can't go outside. So, so we, we had that at the, uh, over Thanksgiving, and then the family flew back on Monday, and Kristen and I decided to take a couple extra days. I had never seen the Grand Canyon, and we were going to drive up, spend a couple days in Sedona, and then go up to the Grand Canyon. So I was actually writing this message from my room at, in, at a hotel in Sedona. Well, the interesting thing is when you pulled into the resort where we were staying, when you got to Sedona, there were two roads. They just split. You could take an upper path or you could take a lower path. And the lower path actually led to where the registration and the restaurants were and the main part of the resort. So as we checked in, we went down, took the path to the right, the path kind of down into the valley, and we got there and registered. Our room wasn't ready yet, so we just hung out there for about an hour, and it was beautiful. It was really, really beautiful in the valley. Show the next picture. There was this kind of creek that ran through the valley, and there were all of these trees, and there wasn't a whole lot of snow at this point. That would come later. But we were looking out, kind of enjoying the view. And if you look through the trees in the background, you can see some of the mountains and outcroppings that Sedona is famous for, right? So not a bad view, just obstructed. So our room came ready, they gave us the keys, they drove us up in this little golf cart to our room, looking the same direction from our room, this was our view. A little different, right? See, now we're seeing over the trees, our, our view isn't obstructed, completely changes our perspective on what we're looking at. And my fear for my heart, for your heart, for our families, is that when we choose the valley of self-interest, man, we, we lose perspective. Our view becomes obstructed. We don't see the glory of God to its fullest. And without knowing it, we're robbing ourselves of the beauty of life. The valley of self-interest Abram, he chose a different path. He chose the highlands of generosity. He gave Lot the choice. Let's pick it up in verse 14. It says this, the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. He says in verse 17, arise, walk the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. In essence, note this. As soon as Lot takes off from the valley, God appears to Abram. I'm trying to put myself in Abram's position at this point. Hey, you go whichever way you want. Stinking nephew just chose the good land. I'm looking at mountainous desert and if Abram's anything like me, I would be thinking, what was I thinking? Like, why did I give that little brat the choice? Like, if I could go back in time and rewind, like, I, I wouldn't let him choose because now I'm stuck. But, but almost immediately, God comes to him and says, hey, Abram, take a walk. Go in any direction you want. Walk as far as you want, as long as you want, and whatever ground your foot touches, it's yours. And oh, by the way, I told you earlier that I was going to make a great nation out of you, but let me expand the blessing that I'm going to give to you because of your generosity. You won't even be able to number your descendants. So 
it's interesting. You're going to see a pattern develop in Abram's life that is very, very different from Lot's. God shows up. He blesses Abram. In response to that blessing, he worships God. He builds an altar. The next thing that he does is he's generous with other people. God blesses him more or expands the blessing that he's already given him, to which response he's once again generous with people and praises the Lord. That's the pattern of Abram's life throughout the book of Genesis. Just to give you an example of this, I won't take the time to read it, but if you jump forward a chapter to Genesis 14, immediately there's a, there's a war in the valley. Canaanite nations collide in the valley where Lot lives. They fight. Lot's taken captive. Abram hears about it from the Judean wilderness. He takes 318 of his guys, chases after the king who took Lot captive, frees him, and because he had victory in the battle, he immediately builds an altar to the Lord and offers a tenth of all of his possessions to the man of God, Melchizedek, who shows up on the scene. Do you remember that name from our study in Hebrews? That's chapter 14. If I were to take you to chapter 18, Genesis, or Abram is sitting outside of his tent. He's been promised these promises that his descendants will be like the sand on the seashore. The problem is he has no kids. So it says the Lord shows up in chapter 18. I believe that's a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance in the Old Testament of Jesus Christ with two angels. They come walking up to Abram. Abram recognizes the guys in chapter 18. He says, have a meal with me. Don't leave. Stay. Let's fix you a meal. The guys are like, okay, you can fix this food. So Abram goes into Sarah and she's, he's like, hey, prepare a meal. I need you to take three measures or three sias of fine flour. Now, I didn't know what three sias were, so I looked it up. A sia is about nine um, quarts of flour. 27 quarts of flour. Like, I'm trying to equate what exactly this means, so I ran over to our bakery in Grand Haven. I looked up the old recipe for cinnamon chip bread. 55 loaves. Okay? Now, I'm not an expert on the dietary habits of angels, but it seems excessive. Would you agree? Like, I mean, that's a lot of bread. And um, they have their meal, and then the angels and the Lord look to Abram and says, we're going to come back next year, and your wife will have a kid. Expanded blessing, expanded detail. It is the legacy that Abram establishes the rest of his life as he is blessed by God, is generous with others, and gives thanks to God. Again, some general references that will support this. Proverbs eleven twenty five: whoever brings blessing will be enriched and the one who waters will himself be watered. Three verses later in Proverbs eleven twenty eight: whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. From the New Testament in Luke 6, verse 38, Jesus says this, it's this simple, give and it'll be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. The picture that Jesus is giving there is if you had a sack of grain and you wanted it to be filled, not only will God fill it, but after it's filled, you can shake it down so that it can hold more. And then he's going to put more in it. And when he's done doing that, you're going to press it down and compact it to create more room. And then he's going to give you more, and then it's going to be overflowing. The picture that Jesus is creating is when we are generous, you need to understand that God will be generous with you. That's God's economy. And in saying that, 
Let me just say what's, what's in your notes, very clear. Money's a test. Money's a test. Your possessions, your finances, it's a test. I could speak on the issue of money being a test for the next 12 weeks. Jesus talks more on this subject than he does about heaven and hell combined. In Proverbs, I've referenced five or six verses. I could take you to 130 verses to talk about how we're to handle the resources that God's entrusted to us. Money is a test. Every financial decision you make is a spiritual decision. Money is not good or bad, but it is a quick tell. It is a litmus test. It reveals what has your heart. Four things. Money is a test of our perspective. Sadly, two ways we can fail the test. One is when we believe that our net worth determines our self-worth. When our net worth determines our self-worth. Luke 12, 15 says, take care and be on guard against any, against, and against all covetousness. Here's the phrase. For one does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. We fail the test when our net worth determines our self-worth and we fail the test when our net worth determines God's goodness. That we look at our condition and we judge God based off his level of provision. Hebrews 13.5 says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, hear this, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do for me? Listen, I understand financial pressures. I understand financial worries and the, the, the weight that we carry to provide for our families. I get it. But when all of our worry is about what's this going to be in the future and how is this going to work, and I'm not saying to live frivolously to blow through your money, but I'm saying when you are consumed by fear that your provision will not be enough for your family, you're missing the fact that we are sons and daughters of a very generous father. We are part of a family where generosity is a trait. Money is a test of our perspective. It is also a test of our identity. It becomes a very simple question of how do you view who you are? Are are you an owner or are you a steward? Money reveals it. I, I need help from somebody in the front row. Will you come up here? She sat in the front row. You can laugh at her, but she took the risk. She knew what she was doing. Okay, so I'm going to have you come up. What's your name? Maddie? Okay. Have we ever dragged you on stage before? Have you ever seen anyone else dragged on stage here? Okay, it doesn't always go really well for them, does it? <laughs> you can get embarrassed like, like you took the risk, right? Well, here's the good news. You picked a really, really good day to come on stage. Because the illustration that I need you to help me with is really simple. I'm going to take, you've got Christmas coming up, right? So things get a little tight at the end of the year. You got to buy presents. You got all this going on, okay? So I'm going to help. I'm going to give you $50. Thank you. It's yours. Um, it's not, I'm giving, it's my money. It's not the church money. I'm not that cavalier. Don't get confused, okay? <laughs> and, and by the way, Cal came up with this illustration this week, and it just hit me. He's at Grand Haven where there's two services, and I'm here where there's three services. That ain't right, all right? So, 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 we, so you get the 50, okay? I just ask one thing. Can I have $5 back? Okay, and will you be generous with the rest? Fantastic, it's yours. Thanks, Maddie. Okay. A question for you. Did she get a good deal? (laughs) 
Anybody else wish I would have called on them? Like, like that ain't a bad deal, right? But if I were to talk to you today about tithing, all of a sudden you'd clench up, wouldn't you? And all of a sudden you'd be like, I can't afford it. (laughs) To talk about tithing is never an issue of affordability. It's always an issue of identity. Are you an owner or are you a steward? God has given us 100% of what we've had. And all he asks is for us to be generous with what he's given us so that we can be generous with other people and that we give him the first fruits of what he's given us. And how you handle your money, and and, and please hear me, Hey, hey, good news, there's no financial push coming year end. We're fine. We, we live within the means. We have the discipline that we will not live above the means. We're going to finish in the black this year. There's no push that we're pushing for. This isn't for us. It's for you. We're concerned that in not preaching about money as often as we should, we're robbing you of what God teaches you. And in the process, we're stealing from you the blessing of generosity. Generosity is a family trait. Are you an owner or are you a steward? of the things that God has entrusted to you. We're stewards, or it is a test of our perspective, of our identity. It's also a test of our love for God. I don't have to expand on this point. Let me just read you two passages from Matthew 6. Matthew 6, 19 says, Don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys or where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. I I can't say it any better than that. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Three verses later in Matthew 6, 24, it says, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It's not complicated. The only question is, do we believe what we believe about the economy and the more that we serve self-interest and the more that we hoard, the more that we'll end up with or do we believe God's economy? And I can promise you this, it's not hard to reveal where your heart is. All you would have to do is show me your bank account and I could tell you exactly what has your heart because money's always a test. It's a test of our love for God. Most importantly, let me say this, it's a test of our understanding of God's love for us. Okay. So why would we choose to talk about generosity at Christmas time? Let me give you a really simple answer. It's not even complicated. John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Don't die. Don't check out on me just cuz I gave you the last point, okay? Hang with me one more minute. Can we think of a better example in all of history of generosity than a manger in Bethlehem? Than angels coming to shepherds, watching sheep, social outcasts, and the glory of God shows up, proclaiming the promise that the day of the descendant of Abram that was promised thousands of years before has finally come to be? 
as you make your way to the manger scene and you see Mary and Joseph in the town of Bethlehem, two parents, nobodies from a nowhere town of Nazareth in a nowhere region of Galilee, holding the Son of God? Is there a better picture in all of history of generosity than the manger scene in Bethlehem? Maybe the cross, right? That God would humble himself, as Philippians says, and come and take on human flesh to the point of death, even death on a cross. Like the whole story of Christmas, the whole story of the life, the birth, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a display of incredible generosity on our Heavenly Father's behalf towards us. I've spent time asking you, are you creating a legacy of generosity that's going to run through the generations of your family? And I think that's an important question for you to consider. Who do you believe knows more about the economy, God or you? Are you going to believe what he says about generosity or are you going to choose to reject it? Are you going to go to the valley of self-interest or the highlands of generosity? I've pushed these questions on you as you consider what to do with your money. Can I close just by saying this? The reason we're generous is not so that we can affect our family's legacy. Primarily, it's to reflect the family of God that we belong to. We have a generous king. He is our heavenly father. And because we have a generous king, we're called to be generous people. The only question is whether we'll obey. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And uh, this is a topic that is not um, unclear. Your communication has clarity. The problem is it cuts against the grain of our own selfishness. Father, teach us to be people that in this season, we're not just celebrating trees and decorations and lights and family and all the good things that happen in this season, but we're remembering a generous king we're committing to be generous people. It's in the name of your son, generosity on display, Jesus Christ, that we have confidence to approach your thought, your throne. It's in his name that we pray. It's his name that we lift high. Father, thank you for your love and generosity towards us. It's in Jesus' name we pray.